The business of culture, the culture of business, policy, markets, media, creatives, the economy. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Gallup just recently did its poll on the best long-term investment according to Americans' opinions, and stocks are way down on that list. Real estate is way up on that list, and gold's even up on that list. Why? Because they're tangible assets. So people think that the home is the best investment they can make, and you have to live somewhere, so it is kind of an investment, especially if you're gonna pass it down from generation to generation. That said, the returns on it are nowhere near the stock market. Just a lot of people don't know that or don't think that way because, again, that home is that tangible place where you're sleeping, where you're raising your family, where you feel safe, and you see it every single day, and the price doesn't change every day like a stock. Back with us, Investopedia's Caleb Silver, discussing markets and the economy at the halfway point of 2023. Stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast, NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. Follow, subscribe, and rate us at linkfulldradio.com. We are on all the social media channels at handle Full D Radio. Joining me from New York, yet again, Caleb Silver, the editor-in-chief of Investopedia in a past life. He was a director of U.S. Business News at CNN. He's been at Bloomberg. He senior produced The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer. Uh, sir, were you at Woodstock? Were you at Altamont? I, I was there. I was uh, helping clear out the crowd after the big uh, riots there. So I've been all over the place. I've been around a long time. Maybe not that long, but I've been around the block in business news. A Forrest Gump-like resume. But let me tell you, the apotheosis of your career is appearing on Full Disclosure for the fifth time this time, which makes you eligible not for a gift card, not for a sandwich, but you are the first person I will serenade since my lowly days on low-power radio. So here we go. Meet me halfway, which you are doing at the halfway mark. How tacky is that? Was that Kenny Loggins in the 80s, a number one track? Just having you sing to me is just worth it. It's just worth coming on your show. It's a pleasure and an honor to join you, Robin. You know I love it. Across the sky, out where the world belongs to only you and I. So uh, uh, by way of hard transition, inflation eased to 3% in June, lowest since Early 2021, all the tweets today midweek are saying that Jerome Powell, head of the Federal Reserve, damn, it feels good to be a gangster. Have, have we vanquished inflation? I think we're getting pretty close. Not only do we see consumer prices fall, but wage growth, which is the other horn of the, of the uh, devil that the Federal Reserve wants to destroy, that actually slowed a lot last month as well. So it wants to slow both wage gains and wage growth and consumer prices. And it looks like these interest rates that have been go interest rate hikes have been going on for the past 14 months. They're working. So how does this stuff work? Again, I'm thinking I'm pegged to the large version of Starbucks cold brew at the grocery store. During the pandemic, when I was wearing my mask, it was consistently $4.99. You're lucky if you could get it for $6.99 right there. How much of that was opportunistic pricing power by the various manufacturers? How much of that was broad inflation across the board, which you had to push through to consumers. And would you see something like that come down in price or have we frozen it in time and we'll just see muted increases now on? I mean, explain that for our listeners. Yeah. Well, that product has what we call price elasticity. It is whatever the customer is willing to pay for it. And you are clearly willing to pay for it 
at $4.99, $5.99, $6.99. Who knows how high you will go until you just won't pay for it anymore. And so we say sort of inflation, the cure for inflation is high prices because eventually consumers back away from spending and so do businesses. We saw some of that, but consumers have been pretty resilient. Just look at Starbucks, but look at travel, look at air travel. People are traveling all over the place these days, even though ticket prices have been rising. So part of that is just the natural forces of the economy driving prices higher and supply chain issues for the last couple of years. But a lot of that is just that retailers and other businesses were able to raise prices and consumers kept on spending. But I don't understand. I mean, I'm trying to think back to times like 2002 or 2008, 2009. Do you start to see fire sales? Do you start to see, I mean, bloodletting where groceries are I don't want to limit it to groceries, but out there where you're seeing retail failures and liquidation sales and actual uh, a sousant of deflation. I mean, how does this stuff course correct? Because again, we saw such a hyperbolic rise since 2020. Yeah, but not all things rose at the same time and not all things have declined at the same time. So if you look at where inflation started, it started in goods because there were supply chain issues for real during the early days of the pandemic and in the year after that. Then it became inflation drifting over to the services part of the economy. That's travel. That's us going out to eat. And we were doing that with a vengeance. We call that revenge spending. And so retailers and businesses and restaurants were able to raise their prices because consumers had this voracious appetite to get out and do things again. And then they realized, you know what? We can keep these prices up here and nobody's backing away from it, at least not yet. How does that course correct? See, I don't understand. And I'm wondering, the Fed here controls monetary policy. It can soak up quantitative easing. The, you know All the bond purchases and the expansion of its balance sheet, in addition to taking rates down to zero, we saw parallel fiscal policy and checks cut by both the Trump and Biden administrations. I'm wondering if the end factor here is PPP. I don't know if we've discussed this before, but so much money in these bank accounts, you saw it maybe contribute to the failure of two very well-capitalized banks that these bank accounts were overflowing with potentially PPP money that's still there, that people live to see another day, small businesses, medium-sized businesses after 2020, and that cash reserve is still there for them to tap. And I'm wondering if that's something, especially when we see the headlines of upward of $200 billion in PPP fraud was clocked post-facto. Does that ever keep you up at night? Yeah, the Paycheck Protection Program is what you're referring to. And there was a lot of money that flushed into the system and not all of it was accounted for. There was a lot of waste there that produced a lot of these inefficiencies in the marketplace that eventually turned into inflation in some areas and went out to consumers as well in a, in a different form, of course. And then, Robin, what's really important here is the stay on student loans. That was a very big deal. And that is coming to an end in September and October. That's about 350 bucks a month in extra spending that student loan borrowers have not had to pay back in over three years. That's a very big deal. And I think now that they're going to have to pay that back, we're going to see what happens to consumers' appetite to keep spending, not just with student loan borrowers, but with consumers overall. So far, they've been resilient despite record credit card APRs, despite the fact that we're burning into our own balance sheets. We just keep spending because that's kind of the American sport. I don't want to sound mercenary, but does that help the Fed's calculus? I mean, if it's thinking maybe I don't need to hike two more times, maybe one more time and hold off in September, and I'm getting this ancillary tightening of sorts when a bunch of people into September and October are going to have write money to their loan processors again? I think it absolutely does. And if you remember the bank failures, one of the things that Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, said during one of the Fed press conferences, the tightening that was going on in just the banking sector because of the bank failures at First Republic and 
and other banks. That was a form of tightening in and of itself, a form of monetary policy tightening in and of itself. So that would enable the Fed to pause interest rate hikes at the last meeting. So there was an artificial tightening going on just because of concerns around lending in the banking sector. I think this is going to have a similar impact on it. And that's why the Fed, when it meets in the next two weeks, that'll probably be the last rate hike we'll see this year. Uh you know, you've discussed this and your website delves into this quite a bit in terms of handholding and personal finance, but but cash, cash and the modern, I guess, investor and saver and personal finance minded person. How do you look at cash when the Fed might be at its terminal rate policy somewhere at 5.25 or five and a half percent, but you can't get that in a 10 year treasury. You have to play around, I guess, with CD and money market funds and shorter term treasuries. I mean, I again, I'm so cliche, but I wax nostalgic for the times that my dad would take me to the Savings Bank of America in 1982 with their toothsome 16% certificates of deposits and they'd throw in a toaster or a blender. Now it's a lot more confusing. You know, I walk into a too big to fail bank like a Bank of America or a Wells, nobody's offering me anything near 5.25%. I kind of have to do my homework. Yeah, and no lollipops either. But we did see, Robin, CDs and money market funds offering 4% high-yield savings accounts, offering between 4 and 5%. And while the stock market was sort of grinding its way into the bottom of that bear market last fall, that became a very attractive alternative for people. Finally, there was an alternative. We've lived in this era of Tina. There is no alternative to stocks for years until these interest rate hikes, you know, blew that out of the water. And the fact that there was finally money in the bank, that was a very big deal. You saw so much money, so much investor money from institutions and individuals going to the sidelines, going to cash products. And that's why you saw that sort of bear market spin out last fall. Well, a lot of it's starting to come back a little bit into the stock market. But the fact that there was 4 or 5% in the bank was a very big deal and it provided some security to people. I'm thinking of Burton Malkiel's class in college, and you know they were teaching us about crowding out. This is supposed to be a competition against the market. I think the S&P 500 yields something around 1, 1.5%. Not that you're taking an apples to apples thing, a risk asset such as stocks that can go up or go down 20, 10, 15%. But it's awfully attractive to kind of take your pandemic asset winnings or excess cash from a home sale or Bitcoin or whatever the heck it was and park it into money at 5.5%. Why isn't that harshing the markets mellow more. We have a stock market that's been up enormously this half. I think because a lot of people did not necessarily make that move into those higher yielding products. You know, it's very hard for people to move their bank accounts around. Their bank accounts are extremely sticky. So while institutions went after that 4%, that 5%, most people didn't move their money out of their traditional savings account that they've had for years and years that yields 0.0001% into those higher yielding products, at least not in force. So it didn't really have the effect that you would normally think, but it did provide some cushion, especially for institutional investors when they wanted to wait out that bear market. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. It is my pleasure to be joined yet again by uh, my friend and uh, business news colleague, Caleb Silver. He came through Richmond, Virginia during the pandemic and enjoyed a salmon Reuben at the Continental Westhampton by the University of Richmond. And uh, I think it changed his life. He is, of course, editor-in-chief of Investopedia. In a past life, he was at CNN, where he was senior producer for The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer, executive producer of CNNMoney.com, which we will talk about. And then he returned to CNN after his time at Bloomberg as the director of U.S. Business News from about 2011 to 2014. Sir, when I look at the S&P 500, it looks so lopsided in terms of tech representation. Of course, the S&P 500 is the benchmark United States market, the capitalization weighted index of these 500 representative companies. 
you know, you think about household names, CVS, McDonald's, but then again, the big tech players, especially Apple is now worth $3 trillion. It's the largest component in the S&P 500. Of course, you have Meta, you have new players like NVIDIA, the chip company, which is a you know near trillion dollar player. When you think about the S&P 500 right now, is it too top heavy and is it flawed when you look at Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, NVIDIA, Google, Tesla? It's like buying a tech fund. And that reminds me, unfortunately, of how it last felt like this around 2000. And we know what happened after that. Yeah, you're not wrong about that. They call them the Magnificent Seven now, all the companies you mentioned, and they do account for about 30% of the weight of the S&P 500, which is a market-weighted index. So it is very top-heavy right now. And it was top-heavy in 1999, except a lot of those companies in 1999-2000 were not profitable. If you look at these seven companies, these are strong profit gushers of companies. They have huge profit margins, they bring in a ton of revenue, and they have pretty much dominated the tech and consumer discretionary landscape for the last several years. If you think about Apple, it has an entire ecosystem that it has built itself into a $3 trillion company. So it's top heavy. But we also had that in the telecom days. We also had that in the early days of the auto stock. We also had that in the early days of the railroad stocks. That's what happens in market cycles. And eventually, if it's a real bull market, like we hope it is, then you're going to see a lot of the other sectors catching up to those companies, to those sectors. And you know what? We're actually starting to see it, believe it or not. If you look at industrials, if you look at transports, and transports include the railroads, but they also include companies like FedEx, those are starting to rally to doom 52-week highs. So we're starting to get a little bit more breadth and balance in the stock market, even though it's super top-heavy with these mega-cap giants. You know, I would like to quote uh, the second quarter letter from Gilman Hill uh, Asset Management said, an understanding, which gets to the Magnificent Seven that you're talking about, an understanding of the equity market environment thus far in 2023 is probably best achieved by looking at one key breakdown of returns. Seven S&P 500 constituent stocks posted a weighted average return of 67% over the six months and were responsible for three quarters of the S&P 500's 17% gain. The other 493 stocks returned a dramatically more muted 9%. While we have seen market bifurcations before, this is among the most dramatic and rapidly developing schisms that we can remember. Is it flawed the way we cap weight things? And again, I don't want it to get too inside baseball for our public radio listenership. You can buy an equal weighted S&P 500 fund, but effectively right now, if you're buying it, you're getting a ton of Apple, Facebook, NVIDIA, Tesla and a bunch of other components because the stones that are being thrown into this pond, the massive stones have bigger ripples. They have much more weight in this by definition than the smaller companies do. Should you be choosing a different index, a different benchmark? You could, Robin, but if you bought the equal weighted S&P ETF, you'd have zero gains so far this year versus a 13 to 14% gain if you own the actual S&P 500. And guess what? These are some of the most widely held stocks, not just in America, but across the planet. If you look at institutions, pension funds, hedge funds, even individual investors like us, when we're investing in our 401ks or in our Roth IRAs, the biggest funds in ETFs, the exchange traded funds we're buying, are heavily weighted with these companies. So you need leadership and you could bemoan it and say, well, it's too much concentration, but we've seen it in generation after generation. And eventually, it reverts back to the mean where you'll get a little bit more balance and a little bit more breadth if you truly have a bear market that has legs. And a lot, I mean, if, if you truly have a bull market that has legs, and a lot of people believe that this one actually does. You know, the mean reversion that happened at the turn of the century, the first decade, 2000 to 2009, was, I believe, the worst for the Standard & Poor's 500 since the Great Depression. It would have been an opportune time, the last time things were this lopsided, to shift 
to more neglected areas such as value or international or things that weren't the flavor of the month. I mean, do you remember when Cisco reigned supreme and Juniper and Yahoo and these other components that have since they've really regressed and they've reverted back to the mean and the market has moved on to other things. And of course, the S&P reinvented itself. Nobody had heard of Tesla at the turn of the century. But these things always seem to become crowded trades. Yeah, they do. And anything with AI, artificial intelligence tied to it, is also a pretty crowded trade right now. It's one of the most popular sectors of the stock market right now. You mentioned NVIDIA. NVIDIA NVIDIA is a big chip stock, but because of its AI efforts, it's been getting a premium from investors who think that is the future. So there's always some shiny new thing that drives premiums, that drives excitement to one part of the market. That's what makes it a marketplace. But eventually, that reverts to the mean as well. But you were talking about you know investing outside the US. This is also the first year in a very long time, 2023, where there are markets outside of the US that are outperforming the United States stock market. And you wouldn't believe some of the top performing stock markets out there from some of these countries, given what's happening economically in those countries, compared to what's happening here. The US economy is grinding along. Yes, it's slowing a little bit, but Things are going to get better probably in the second half of this year and into next year. If you look at some of these other countries that have the top performing markets, it would blow your mind. Why is it then that in aggregate, if you look at, a, say, like a Vanguard International Index, like is there's a combination of developed Europe and you know G7 type countries with emerging markets, why has that been largely dead money for 15 years? You know, I, I may have discussed this in the past. The late Jack Bogle of Vanguard, the, the founding father of the index fund, one of the great minds of investing and revolutionized and democratized investing for mom and pop, kind of said you don't really need to be an international. The S&P 500 does it enough for you. I mean, a Coke, you know, we've had Thomas Gaynor of Markel on the show and he turned it around and he said, Honda, is it a Japanese company or is it an American company? Kind of as a, you know, a Rorschach type question. And there are many people out there who would say you don't need to. It's just, uh, it's just excess. It's, it's bunting. It's window dressing. Yeah, well, if you think about the S&P 500 and some of the biggest companies, you just mentioned Coca-Cola, but you can also put a Caterpillar in there. Half of their sales come from outside the US. So you are getting that international exposure if you're buying these companies as well, and you don't have to invest in foreign markets. But when you think about Argentina with an inflation rate of 90% right now, at least, it's one of the top performing stock markets on the planet today. Also, Nigeria. It's got a lot of political problems going on in Nigeria right now. Top performing stock market on the planet today. Greece, which has terrible uh, economic issues. Again, a top performer. So sometimes the pendulum swifts to these other mar- shifts to these other markets because investors think the best days are in- ahead of them. So investors are always looking into the future. When they look at some of these economies, they think it's going to get better. I'm going to start buying those markets now. Now, it's not a great strategy if you want to have a broadly diversified portfolio to just buy the winning international markets, but you have to keep your eye on them if you want to be a solid long-term investor and have a diversified portfolio that can last you for generations. Final thought on the Fed here, kind of a postscript, and there's still you know, two questionable things. Are they going to hike next time around? Probably. Uh, are they going to hike in September? Maybe not, considering the muted, relatively muted inflation news. But can the Fed just keep rates at a high level for a long time? I feel and I sense pain in the mortgage market right now, and yet we still have a, shorting, a shortage of housing. I don't think home builders are complaining. There's real serious collateral damage when the Fed keeps rates at a tight level. I think it's hiked more than 10 times or 10 times at least. It's kind of not equally distributed. You might be able to take some of the air out of risk assets, but we still have a housing shortage. We still have a difficult time if you're a smaller, medium-sized business getting capital formation loans. 
Yeah, let's that notion of higher for longer, higher interest rates for longer is very real. But if you look at sort of the forecast for where interest rates or the Fed funds rates going to be at the end of this year or next year, it's going to drop about a percent by the middle of next year. But in two years, it's going to be down sort of in that 3% area. And the Fed raises rates, it did it to, to combat inflation until something breaks. Well, a lot of things broke in the last year or so, Robin. A lot of those banks, the bank failures, a lot of the pain in the regional banks was because these banks hold government bonds on their balance sheets as collateral. So as the Fed raises rates, those prices go down a lot. So the Fed did break things through those interest rate hikes. And the housing market, you could say, that's in a recession. If you look across the US economy, one of the only places you see real pain is in the housing market. Now, housing prices haven't come down a lot because homeowners who have mortgages below 5 or 4%, they are in no mood to sell their home to go out and buy a new one at a 6-7% handle on a new mortgage. So that's why you're seeing not a lot of inventory out there and prices not moving that much. But why? Doesn't it even out? Suppose you were one of the lucky people to avail yourself of a 3% mortgage, let's say in 2021, and the price of the home is up, I don't know, 40% right now. You get significant capital appreciation. You'll have a ton more money to put down on a down payment. Why should the 7% mortgage which you would think would be on a smaller amount of principal that you have to pay, be prohibitive right now. Yeah. Well, this is the, you're talking about people that bought in the last two or three years. I'm talking about people that yeah. have been in their homes for 20, 25 years. That's a that's a very big decision to move and buy a but new home. But those home prices have those home prices have since gone up a lot. I would think astronomically, and so they're sitting on their wealth and they're living inside their wealth. And the thing about housing, Robin, and you know this from from being in this business too for a long time. It's a tangible asset versus stocks. Stocks, you can see the tickers going up and down every day. If you look at business news TV or if you look at the news at the end of the day, Dow went up, Dow went down. But your house is right there. You're sitting in it. You're sitting on your front porch or your back porch having a lemonade with your family. It's a very tangible asset. So people are very loath to sell unless they need to or unless they want to create a capital event and then go on and buy a new house or distribute that money in some other way. So it's one of those assets that's very tough to move for those reasons. Plus, it's super emotional. Stocks come and go, but your home is your home, and that's where the heart is. Kellep, there's a stat that I've been dying to share with you and get your thoughts on. It appeared in the Visual Capitalist. Gary Belsky, uh, formerly of Money Magazine, posted it on LinkedIn. It was published in late June. U.S. home price growth over 50 years. Nominal versus real home prices, 1971 to 2022. Nominally, which everybody looks at the headline number, including the highest level on record, the Q1 of 2022, which was 20% annually. Since 1971, it's up 7.1% nominally. In real terms, zero. Price growth, I mean, it evened out. Comes back to your point of getting significant karmic dividends from living in the home, the opportunity cost of money not going to other things and refinancing several times. but. I don't think a, a homeowner on the street would think that you're purchasing power in a house, a median house, over five decades has not increased. Yeah, and that's the funny thing about it is if, if Gallup just recently did its poll on the best long-term investment, according to Americans' opinions, and stocks are way down on that list. Real estate is way up on that list, and gold's even up on that list. Why? Because they're tangible assets. So people think that the home is the best investment they can make. And you have to live somewhere. So it is kind of an investment, especially if you're going to pass it down from generation to generation. That said, the returns on it are nowhere near the stock market. Just a lot of people don't know that or don't think that way. Because again, that home is that tangible place where you're sleeping, where you're raising your family, where you feel safe, and you see it every single day. And the price doesn't change every day like a stock. But wasn't the prevailing idea, especially in the, the inflation of the 70s and 80s, that it was a hedge against inflation? And, and this shows that, that it isn't. In fact, the stock market was a hedge against inflation. Uh, Belsky himself said, 
Put another way, after adjusting for inflation, every dollar invested in a U.S. home in 1972 had the exact same purchasing power in 2022, while every dollar invested in U.S. stocks in 1972 had $16,000 worth of purchasing power in 2022. It's just this misconception that we have when it comes to asset pricing. But again, it's hard to break that through into people's minds because of the tangibility of the home. And homes, you know, you, you see uh, in different neighborhoods going up in different pri- you know, various price points, you see them all over town. It's, it's an aspirational purchase and it's an aspirational asset. Everybody wants eventually to have their own home or build their own home. And once you have it, you think of it very differently than if you're buying securities or buying stocks. It's just a different type of investment and it has this psychological hold on us for good reason. Full disclosure, please do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers indeed, including and especially Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe and tell your auntie, is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. We are on all the socials at handle fulldradio. And please follow for news of big honking live shows coming up again at the University of Richmond in the fall. We're going to have Steve Inskeep of NPR. We're going to have Rashida Jones of MSNBC, James Beard, finalist. Sunny Bawija, some big honking names on the pipeline brought to you by Full Disclosure and the University of Richmond. So do stay in touch. If you're just joining us, my esteemed guest yet again is Caleb Silver, the editor-in-chief of Investopedia. He is a all-things business news polymath. He'd previously been head of business news at CNN. He was at Bloomberg. He, gosh, you, you produced Wolf Blitzer, sir. I would love to ask you about a piece that appeared in Vestapedia that is piquing a lot of interest on these transition metals. You're quoting the IEA, the demand for clean energy minerals skyrockets amid supply concerns. I know you're really into clean energy and sustainability, and you get investors that are whispering in my ear that says the market for these transition minerals is just exploding, and they're very limited. Half of all planned lithium chemical plants are in China and Indonesia. They account for 90% of planned nickel refining facilities. We need these things for next generation solid state batteries. We know that that's holding up the likes of not just Tesla and GM and Toyota, but uh, the entire grid that's looking for battery storage. Uh, Are we seeing kind of the development of a new OPEC? We may be seeing that. And you're seeing it again in these precious metals, as they call these these rare earth metals, as they're called. So you're talking about demand for lithium, that and cobalt jumping 70% in just five years. We're going to need even more of it. And they come... These minerals come from places like Bolivia, come from places like Indonesia. So you're seeing a lot of money, especially from the Chinese government and the European government, going into investments in these countries to try to sort of corner the market on these material on these minerals because these are going to be the building blocks of technology for the next several generations. Does this make China thump its chest even more? Because I, in my experience, like back with the commodities boom of, of I think you know 20 years ago, China was exerting more weight. Like for example, with copper in Peru with other esoteric materials in Argentina, was snapping up soya beans. It was in the Philippines. It was in Malaysia for rubber. We know that it's the voracious consumer of choice. And it largely doesn't want to sully its hands on talks of human rights or favorite nation trading status. It shows up in places like Zambia or Chad and says, you know, you got it, we'll take it. Yeah, I was just in South America in Brazil and in Uruguay, and a lot of the development there is being paid for by the Chinese government. They're building a massive new port down in the Montevideo area, laying a huge railroad that goes all the way up into the river plate. So they're putting the money on the ground and in the water to make sure that they are front and center on gaining access to those materials. And then being the transport king of all of that, of commerce, 
because China's on this plan to be the technological leader on the planet by the year 2025, but they're going to get there by also cornering the market on a lot of these materials as well. Caleb, is that the knock on emerging market investing, which again has been dead money for 15 years, but if you buy an emerging market index, an MSCI or a you know FTSE all world, that it's like we were talking about the Standard & Poor's 500, it's so overwhelmingly China, let's say the China components, which the Chinese stock market, for as much as China is prestigious for its manufacturing capability, its electronics, its chips IP, and it being the second biggest economy on the planet, its stock market is kind of a backwater. There isn't the same transparency. And for example, if it represents 25% of an emerging market index, and yet all of these other component countries in it are China plays effectively, is that a problem with the grand scheme of emerging market investing? A little bit, but you know they have to go where the where the customers are. So China is the second biggest economy on the planet. The U.S. is number one. They're getting pretty close. But these emerging market economies depend on their customers, and their two biggest customers are China and the U.S. So you are by nature investing in the future consumer behaviors of both of these mega countries. That's what's happened to the, a lot of these emerging markets. There are some outliers there, and a lot of the Nordic countries are very different in that respect. Um, they're not necessarily emerging markets, but they have sort of more insulated economies where they deal just mostly in Europe. Uh, but when you look at economies like Vietnam or Thailand, you're talking about these countries that are really are there making a lot of money by selling to China or importing from China and selling to the US and vice versa. So that's what you're getting. And that's just the nature of the way things work today. So you can ignore the fact that uh, that's happening, but you have to respect the fact that that's how commerce works today in the 21st century, and that's how it's going to work as long as these economies continue to develop. You cited it in Investopedia, but uh, Jim O'Neill, uh, formerly of Goldman Sachs, the economist, quoted BRIC, BRICS, which we haven't talked about the BRICS in a while, that the economists believed at the turn of this century that these four nations, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, would become dominant suppliers of manufactured goods, services, and raw material by 2050. You know, we don't hear about Russia anymore. It effectively dropped out of investing dumb after its invasion of Ukraine. What with all the sanctions, Brazil has had a lost decade. Uh, India and China get talked about, but again, China's stock market is disconnected from the rest of its, you know, economy or central planning. And I understand that South Africa technically joined this group and it became known as the BRICS in 2010, but then there are others saying that we should focus on Indonesia and and maybe others. Indonesia is a growing population and a growing population of a lot of thought industry workers. So they have a lot of coders there. They have a very developed economy there, and it's attracting a lot of talent, and it's attracting a lot of companies. If you look at what's happening in Asia, you're seeing a lot of companies move there, again, for that talent pool. Uh, so you can't ignore that. But the, the BRICS are starting to make a lot of noise, and you're hearing a lot of it around oil and, and paying for oil. You're hearing a lot of people talking about you know, the death of the dollar. We've heard that one before. Let me just remind you and your listeners that uh, dollar-denominated transactions account for about 85% of total transactions across the planet today. So it's going to be a while before the dollar is dead. But if you see more and more countries sort of aligning to move off of the dollar, whether if it's for oil transactions or whether if it's for microchips or for talent, that could be a problem for the United States going forward out a few years. Not going to happen tomorrow, but it's something we need to keep an eye on for the next two years. And these BRIC countries are sort of gathering around one another saying, is there a better way for us to do business where we don't necessarily have to deal with the dollar? We'll see how that plays out. Again, not a problem for today, but something you want to keep on your mind for the horizon. What are some of the odd idiosyncratic risks that you see right now? Everybody seemed to have started this year with the idea that recession was fait accompli. We've had many jobs created. 
But then we had these two massive bank failures for kind of a high class bizarro reason that there were too much cash, uninsured cash in the accounts. And combined with everybody being on a smartphone, being able to move money out and create bank runs very easily. Again, that was just a tempest. It didn't continue into the broader economy past the spring. But are there other things that might keep you up at night? Yeah, not a lot of people had that in their game plan going into the year. But if you think about the things that kind of get, are worrying a little bit, you think about the fact that student loan repayments are going to resume in September and October. That's about $350 a month for borrowers that they haven't had to pay in the past three years. That's where a lot of the consumer spending strength has been. And then I know it's happening in RBA, but it's happening around the country. It's just sort of this doom loop of the lack of commercial real estate activity in these empty storefronts, whether it's Des Moines, whether it's Chicago, whether it's New York, San Francisco, you still see a lot of that. Now, who underwrites all that risk for all those empty commercial uh, businesses? Banks underwrite a lot of that. So they have a lot of risk on their books. They're already in trouble because of those rising interest rates, and it already caused the failure of at least three banks. So the fact that there's all this empty real estate, that's a tail risk. And then there's climate, which I think is going to become a bigger and bigger deal if it isn't already. We had major floods here in New York uh, just this past weekend, but you're talking about wildfires in different parts of the country, floods in different parts of the countries, droughts in different parts of the country, not just this country, but around the world. So climate, and again, that commercial real estate risk, two big bogeys out there that you want to keep your eyes on. Yeah. So case in point, Farmers Insurance is the latest property insurer to pull out of Florida uh, this week, despite repeated efforts by the, the state legislature to keep them there. And when you look at things that happen, you know, um, they call it atmospheric rivers, the flooding that you saw in California, in Vermont, in uh, you know, the Hudson Valley of New York, you're going to have to reassess underwriting risk. And I wonder if that's something that brings down the housing market. If you add to the nut inability to buy insurance or make it prohibitively difficult, that no one is going to want to buy or transact in that environment. Yeah. If insurers aren't willing to underwrite mortgages, then you think about the 30-year mortgage, right? That is the foundation of the US housing market. The fact that you could stretch out that payment and pay for your house over the course of 30 years and a bank would underwrite it, an insurance company would give you insurance to live there. If that's not happening in certain places like Florida or in other places that are going to have a lot of climate risk, think about New Orleans, think about areas of California, even here in the Northeast, that's going to be a real problem because the 30-year mortgage is what most people opt for when they go to buy their first home. Not only is the housing market in trouble because of high interest rates, but the fact that there's more and more risk in the underwriting process, that could become a very big issue. And we were talking about housing before, how important it is for people. It's the, it's the biggest asset people purchase, right? And the fact that if you can't get insurance on that or that 30-year is no longer available, that's going to create a very big dynamic change to the overall economy. I'm quoting from the Miami Herald here. The decision by farmers follows years of turmoil in the state's property insurance market, triggered by a series of hurricanes starting in 2017. Floridians pay the highest property insurance premiums in the nation, and 13 companies have gone insolvent in recent years. Many others have stopped writing new policies or pulled out of Florida. Wow. Caleb, what is the situation? Again, I, I try to ask you for the mood in New York. It seems like people are just okay trundling along with minimum capacity, these empty canyons of square footage in midtown Manhattan or in the former financial district, which has become heavily residential. Is that just normalcy right now for New York? I don't see an urgency to go back to the office. You have a real worry about commuters and the city's economy and the broader implications for mass transit and the entire ecosystem. Yeah, we do a lot of data studies on the New York City economy. We do this in partnership with New York One, our, our local cable channel here, just to look at the health of the tourism economy and the New York City economy overall. And you got about 
50, 55% of people returning to the office on a more regular basis during the week. But Mondays and Fridays feel like Sundays here in New York. And I'm downtown in the Wall Street area. It really feels like a ghost town here sometimes. That said, companies are getting more serious about requiring their employees to come back in. We'll see if that changes because a lot of people got used to the working from home at least a couple of days a week. What's also odd, Robin, is that even though there's a lot of retail vacancies, especially in midtown Manhattan, prices for those spots have not come down. So landlords are not bending and lowering their prices to lure in new businesses, either because they think prices or they think the demand is going to come back, or they're probably too stuck with mortgages of their own that they have to keep those prices high and just hope that people come back and buy and and rent their properties and put their businesses back in some of these anchor buildings. But it is not happening right now. It's a very interesting dynamic, very big uh, vacancy rate, but a very low drop in prices. And yet we still see figures of Park Avenue, massive acquisitions or people on Central Park West or the Upper East Side that the residential market seems to have its own demands, that there are foreigners that love to park money in New York real estate, whether or not, who, you know, regardless, be damned whatever happens in commercial real estate. Yeah, you see uh, some of the most expensive apartments that have been sold in New York over the last three to five years have been, by for- have been bought by foreigners. So that's where a lot of those purchases are coming, and those skew the overall prices of the median apartment price here in New York City, of course. So that's been happening a lot. But if people just want to try to rent and live in New York City, the average rent in Manhattan, the median, I should say, is about $4,200. So if you're you know, just getting your first job, you're out of college, you come to the big city to try to get a job like you and I tried to do, $4,200 is much more than one third of your income, uh, especially if you're you know, getting into your first job or, or you're in the early stages of your career. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Full Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. My guest is Caleb Silver. He is editor-in-chief of Investopedia. He was former president, board of governors of the Society for Advancing Business Editing and Writing in Past Lives. He was CNN's director of U.S. business news from 2011 to 2014. Uh, one of the founding, one, one of the founders of CNN Money, or you were editor of CNN Money? Uh, I was the executive producer of CNN Money and on the executive team. So I brought online video to CNN Money way back in the day and had a great 10-year run at CNN. But CNN Money, which is now called CNN Business, a very special place for me to spend part of my career. Well, I'm really curious to kind of turn the lens back on us and in the industry and digital media, especially. You saw Chris Lick, the head of, of CNN, uh, lost his job. There was a big expose in the Atlantic. Been a time of huge turmoil for your old stomping grounds. And I think that the focus overwhelmingly is on the network and still TV news, which captures tremendous carriage fees. But whatever happened to CNN money? That seems to, to my mind, it's still one of the top portals or whatever used to be called CNN money right now, but it's not going to move the needle for a parent company. And so you, you in effect, have one of the top business portals in the world, if not the top one, just kind of withering on the vine. You know, what we tried to do back in the day was really make it a part of the entire ecosystem. But that was when Time and and, uh, Turner, Time Warner and Turner were co-owners of CNN. It was one company there. So we tried to make it much more integrated. So you would have CNN money segments on regular CNN or on CNN International. We could sell ads across both the digital site and also on TV. So we were doing a lot of that. Well, eventually, 
They decided that money was not the right name for that since it did come from Money Magazine, the time part of the family, way back in the day. And they dropped that and just made it CNN business. And, you know, it's kind of, uh, unfortunately, it's lost some very good people who are good friends of mine, who are terrific writers and editors. But still, there's some good people that are there doing the good work. And I believe in them and I want them to succeed. I like having them. We need them in this space in business news. They're a valuable voice. And I, I do believe that they will make it. Your parent right now is IAC.-Meredith. Can you explain that for me? Yeah, IAC is sort of our grandparent company. This is Interactive Corp, and it really holds a lot of digital companies uh, within it. So if you think about Match, match Match.com came out of IAC, but we also own Vivian Health, or they own Vivian Health, Care.com, Angie's uh, List. So we're a part of that family. Dot-Meredith is actually the parent company of Investopedia. Dot-Dash, you might remember as About.com back in the day changed its name to Dot Dash, and then relaunched as seven separate brands. And some of them you may be familiar with, like Very Well is one of them, Very Well Health, one of the largest health sites out there. The Balance, one of our uh, other finance sites, is in that group as well. And then about two years ago, we acquired Meredith, which is a you know, more than a 100-year-old publisher that was based in Des Moines with some of the greatest brands in publishing, including People, Real Simple, food and wine, travel and leisure, better homes and gardens. So now we're about 30 brands strong inside the biggest publisher maybe in the world, which is now called Dot Dash Meredith, and Investopedia lives within that family. So the digital native stuff right here, you're not dependent on newsstand sales or full page ads or pharmaceutical advertising or whatever it is. Is there a way to grow and make a, make, make a living as, as you are, as a kind of a portfolio component? I'm thinking about the catastrophic demise of Vice and BuzzFeed News and uh, the various other layoffs we've seen across the board with these these players that came out that even took venture capital money and seed money over the last several years, but were never able to sustainably make money and grow. Yeah. Well, we believe that there is a place for strong brands that people rely and trust in the publishing space, right? We believe especially now with AI and other things coming on, that being a trusted source of information, and Investopedia takes this very seriously, but so do our other brands, that's a very good place for us to be. We have experts writing our content, editing our content, reviewing our content, real content by real people. For real people that have questions, we think we're really good at that, and there is a place for that. And I think our business is going to survive all of this. And I think it's because of, again, the strength of the brand, but also the focus on really helping people and I know it may sound a little cheeky, but that's kind of what we're here for. We're here to answer people's questions. People don't browse Investopedia, Robin. They come to us when they have a question, whether that question is, should I invest in this or that? Or what's the difference between a Roth IRA and a 401k? Or how do I invest $10,000? They come to us seeking answers, and we believe we've earned that trust, so they're going to continue to come back to us. Now, you mentioned magazines. Meredith was a very big magazine company. Now, we've kept several of several magazines that we're still putting on newsstands, but believe it or not, Investopedia is now making magazines too, because we believe there's a place for us there. So we have one on newsstands now called what to do with $10,000, which is a very popular question we get here at Investopedia. We also had a retirement issue out earlier in the year. We're having one at the end of the year. We're actually making magazines, so it's a little back to the future for us too. It's a lot of fun, and it's a new way for us to reach audiences. We were discussing this last week with Craig Matters, who you may have crossed paths with at CNN Money. Um, (laughs) This is one of the founders, I believe, of CNN Money, but he was formerly managing editor of Money Magazine, and in 2015, he went off on this vision quest to become a a high school, public high school teacher in um, Springfield, Mass. But it's amazing to me, and I worked at Smart Money, the personal finance magazine of the Wall Street Journal at the turn of the century. Smart Money magazine no longer exists. Money magazine no longer exists. I think Kipps, Kiplinger's bought the 
circulation list to Money Magazine, and a Puerto Rican-based advertising agency bought the IP of money. That just blows the mind. And here you are as Investopedia, which was created online, backwards integrating into magazines. Yeah. And we're founded in 1999. So that's 23 years. But in internet years, that's like 230 years. But now we're making magazines too, in addition to making TikToks and online video for YouTube and shorts and doing our articles. We want to be multimedia. Whatever platform users want to engage with us, we want to be there. Caleb, what about uh, generationally? You you hear about this a lot. There's a ton of people, I mean, millennials, borderline Gen Z people who are locked out of the housing market who feel like the social compact of the United States kind of stiffed them. That my parents got to do X, Y, and Z, and they got you know, whatever it was, a GI bill or a 30-year mortgage and the subsidy, but I graduated into a terrible time in 2008, 2009. There's an awful housing shortage right now. I waited and I tried to save and husband money as a renter, but there's a shortage of homes and they're expensive right now. I'm being asked to invest in the stock market uh, because there's a generational transfer of wealth. I-, I sense, at least in my verbal contacts with people who I cross paths with in the millennial era, tremendous amount of confusion and consternation and bitterness. And they're kind of paralyzed right now. Like, what, what do I even do? We could do a whole episode or several on this because I think it's very real. That palpable feeling, especially with younger generations, that they're not going to be able to do better than their parents, well, that is the antithesis of the American dream, where we're supposed to believe that we're going to do better generation after generation than those before us because of developments, because of the fact that we're getting good educations, we're eating better, we're exercising more. All those things are true, but there is this feeling, especially in younger generations, that it's just not going to get any better. But I think a lot of that is rooted in the fact that we've had a very rough few years here coming out of COVID. I think that destabilized a lot of things. But just think about the notion of college, a four-year college, which was very important to me. I have a child in college and one who's considering it. But just that notion of, do I really need to go through that and put my parents through or pay for uh, $250,000 worth of private education or $150,000 worth of uh, public university education and only have to pay that back when I get out? When I could go and learn to be a data scientist on my own or become an influencer and make money from brands that just want to send me money because of the audiences I generate, there's a different way of thinking right now, and we have to respect that. That said, investing is the core foundation of building wealth. So if you don't think you're going to do better than your parents and you're not investing, you never had a chance. We do believe in investing. It doesn't necessarily just mean the stock market. You could have a really diversified portfolio with real estate, with stocks, with bonds with cash in some places, and you can build wealth over time. But if you don't understand that, if you were never taught that or never exposed to it or never had those conversations in school or around the home, you're never going to believe it. You have to learn it to believe it. And that's what we believe. Do you cringe when you watch something like Shark Tank or one of these venture pitch competitions and you have a young entrepreneur come out and say, I'm investing in myself. I'm tapping all of my savings and rating my first 401k in this idea. It's so it's so great. I mean, there's something wonderful and bootstrappy about self-determination, but I speak to, you know, chastened 35-year-olds and 40-year-olds right now with families and homes who said, gosh, if I'd had any discipline in my first job and tucked away some money in a matched 401k, I'd be sitting a lot prettier right now. Yeah, and you hate to see people sort of empty the piggy bank to chase the dream, but you don't want to dissuade people from chasing the dream because that's how innovation happens and that's how breakthroughs happen. At the same time, it's that learning about wealth at a very young age that is the missing piece in a lot of this. And so we've been devoting a lot of our time and energy and my own personal time towards trying to drive uh, financial education and literacy into public schools. 
where we need it most, and especially in the communities that don't have access to it, because a lot of these conversations around wealth building, how money really works, especially how money works in the 21st century, they're not happening. Just given the fact, Robin, that people can go into a Starbucks, like you say, and just Apple Pay and tap their phone and not really feel that feeling of taking money out of your wallet, that's a very big psychological difference. That changes the way we feel about money. So education around wealth, wealth building, credit, debt, all of that is super important right now, and that's where we're focused. And adjacent to this, you mentioned the Starbucks app up. I got to ask you because it's on everybody's talking about it right now. What's going to happen to tipflation? You know, the Starbucks nearest me was a victim of the pandemic when they decided to reorganize and go into all drive-through available locations. So uh, everybody in this grocery shopping center is looking for a cup of coffee. The grocery store doesn't offer it, so the juice bar next door pivots and offers a mediocre cup of coffee. Uh, you can only get a plant-based milk, which is a 60-cent upcharge anyway. Uh, you There's one size. You are charged a 4% credit card surcharge. All of us were trained to move to credit card, contactless payment during the pandemic anyway. And the default first tip option is 20%. So net-net, you're paying something like $6.30 for a pretty mediocre afterthought uh, 12-ounce cup of coffee. Yeah, that tipflation, we're going to see the pendulum swing the other way and swing fast, which is tough because I grew up in the restaurant industry and you know I was able to make money with those tips. I depended on them. But there's a difference between getting great service at a restaurant and tipping your waiter 15, 20, 25% or getting a, a drink at a coffee bar and automatically having to tip just because somebody fulfilled your order. And even Danny Meyer, who's a great restaurateur and a real uh, a giant in hospitality, says there's just some things that you just don't tip for anymore. And in fact, he did away with tipping at his New York City restaurants because he felt it was putting pressure on both his staff and on his customers. So he just raised the prices a little bit. And guess what? His food is so good and his restaurants are so nice and the service is so excellent that you don't feel it. You're happy to pay it. How many people are in a position to do that though? The, the diner you see perennially with the help wanted, please sign on outside with this money coming back with people wanting to spend that they cannot hire people. And one of the bargaining chips right now has become that tip prompt that you know, immediately, sometimes before you even see the total. Do you want to tip 20%, 25%, 30%? Oh, you're asked for a tip before you get out of your Uber, even before you get picked up sometimes, <laughs> and you haven't even been delivered to where you want to go. So I think it's going to change that industry a lot. The restaurant industry has already been through a lot in the last few years. We're not even close to being done with some of that transformation. So that's just one industry that relies on tipping. But you know, I was at the cleaner the other day, and they have a tipping uh, bucket there. And I was like, for the dry cleaner. And I was like, well, I, I didn't know what to do. Of course, I put a couple of bucks in because I felt like I was on the spot. But this is just the service I expect. I pay you three bucks to do my shirt. And I don't feel like I need to pay you $3.50 because this is a service that you and I agreed on. So it's gone too far and it's going to get paired back. Again, another reversion to the mean that it went too far in one direction and it'll swing too far back in the other until we find the right place. Caleb Silver, close us out with a tip, if you will. Yeah, the biggest Talking tip- about tips. The biggest tip I have, and we say this all the time, is if you haven't started investing, the best day to start investing was yesterday. The next best day is today. We really believe that. We're not trying to push people necessarily into the stock market, but the fact that you investing is just another way to pay yourself. And I, I say this a lot to some people as well. You got to be the CEO of your own life, right? Treat yourself and your household like a business. Don't be ruthless about it, but just think about it in terms of the way you spend money, the way you save money where your money goes, teaching your kids about money, be the CEO so you can run your own business and your own life successfully. Those are two big tips. They're not necessarily going to help you today, but they should help you down the road. 
And there is a lot of self-harm in this. J.P. Morgan used to put out a chart on the median investor return versus various asset classes. And because of the temptation to buy when everybody's buying and sell when everybody's selling, you become your worst enemy. There are very few people out there who have the discipline, the dollar cost average, who, you know, if you suddenly find $10,000 in the cushion, not that everybody does, $1,000, do you have the discipline to discharge this amount of debt, save this amount, give this much to charity and tzedakah, invest this amount, which after all, right now, you don't even have commissions anymore with many of these brokerage firms that you can buy really low-cost investing vehicles, ETFs and index funds for, for pennies on the dollar. Yeah, I, I still think that it's the most important thing you can do, which is to pay yourself first. And whether you're paying yourself by putting money in savings, and hopefully now you're getting 4% on your money in a high-yield savings account, if not, break up with your bank, or you're paying yourself by investing and, and continuing to buy until you reach that period in your career or in your life where you're ready to draw down that money. Because the best advice that anybody's ever given me, just keep buying dollar cost average into the stock market or to the ETFs that I want to own. And that has been a very valuable piece of advice and helped me generate um, wealth over time. But I didn't know it until somebody showed it to me and they had to show it to me a couple of times to learn it. So that's my best advice. I will say I regret not having started earlier kind of in my whippersnapper 20-something days when I didn't know a 401k from a Roth or anything. But also, this is neither here nor there. I know both of us have a connection to Miami. I drive up and down Biscayne Boulevard and there was so much dereliction uh, when I worked there in 98 and 99, and now this is the hub of inflation in the United States, all this money coming in, which kind of underscores uh, mean reversion and how certain funks don't last and uh, areas that become euphoric at a certain period weren't always that way. Yeah. Uh, you and I should have opened a taco stand down on Biscayne Boulevard. We would be sitting pretty on our <laughs> yachts right now, going around the bay saying hi to DJ Khaled. Ah, Caleb Silver, you are always welcome on this show. Editor-in-Chief of Investopedia, formerly head of business news coverage at CNN. I love having you on. Sir, please do come back on. Uh, anytime, Robin. Always good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Full disclosure, if you are listening to us on the radio, note that while we often have to cut for broadcast time, the entirety of every interview is on podcast at NPR, Spotify, and on all fine podcatchers, including and especially Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. Please subscribe and rate us. Special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly, Radio IQ NPR, WPVM, and KPPQ. Message me if you too would like to carry full disclosure on your air. My DMs are always open. We are on all social media channels at handle Full D Radio. And stay tuned for a roster of big live event announcements at the University of Richmond. And catch me every week on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week. Mm -hmm.